We have got a legend, an absolute legend in the building for this podcast. He's a recipient of over 20 international awards, seven honorary doctorates, an Ivan Novello Lifetime Achievement Award. Hope that doesn't make you sound old or feel old. I, I am old. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, he's scored over 60 films, many TV seasons, and, and made 20 studio albums. As far as I've read, I don't know if that's changed. We have the one and only Mr. Nitin Sawney. Thank you so much for being here. Listening to those accolades of yours, how does that sound? Is it? Are you in a position where you sort of feel satisfied with where you are and how far you've come, or are you someone who's always like, no, there's there's the next thing? Well, I don't tend to look back that much in terms of feeling uh, satisfaction or anything like that. To be honest with you, I, I live life through uh, imposter syndrome all the time, so I, I've always had that. I think that's probably my main driving force. To be honest, is that I I kind of feel undeserving of everything that happens to me, so I kind of try to make the most of it all the time, and maybe that's uh, what's what's kind of helped me out in life a bit. But yeah, God, that's crazy that even in you know the status that you're at and the levels that you've got to, that you still feel that imposter syndrome. Do you think that's something that will ever go away? Are you at ease with that now, maybe? That's a long, complicated kind of answer to a relatively simple question. I don't think I'll ever feel totally at ease with success, if that's what you call it. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, things, nice things happening to me, I guess, is the better way of putting it. I have a lot of lovely things that happen to me, and I'm very lucky in that respect. I guess it's kind of... Um, you know, it's something I deal with in therapy. I talk a lot about that. And and I think the way in which we experience uh, situations as children and so on shapes our filters of perception, how we kind of do things and kind of how we think about the world around us and our relationship with it. So I guess I'm very lucky. I have a lot of amazing things that have happened to me. I've had a lovely life. I can't complain about any of it. Um, but I quite often think, wow, how has this happened to me? So I'm, that's most of the time, that's what I have in my head. Do you still have those pinch me moments with some of the artists that you've worked with, Paul McCartney, A.R. Rahman, just to name a couple? Um, yes, is the short answer. The weirdest thing that happened to me recently was when I was sitting around um, just watching television and then I get a call from David Gilmore from Pink Floyd saying, how do you feel about being an official member of Pink Floyd? And I went, uh, well, you're such an unsuccessful band, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was mad because I, I recorded the track for the Ukrainian charity, for um, which is a track called Rise Up or Hey Hey Rise Up. And it went to number one in, I think, 29 different countries. And uh, But to be officially, you know, in, in that video as a member of Pink Floyd and, and in all of the uh, press and so on was quite mad. And, you know, if anything's ever going to give you imposter syndrome, it's actually being asked to join Pink Floyd. So so, uh, so I guess, you know, I, I do have amazing pinch me moments all the time. I mean, meeting Nelson Mandela um, wow. in his house and interviewing him uh, was one of the most incredible experiences. Having Paul McCartney walk into my bedroom, um, you know, Jeff Beck walk into my bedroom back in the 90s making albums then in you know bedroom albums you know that was those things were crazy um going on tour with sting the first time i played the royal Albert hall to a sold out audience um, so many incredible experiences where i go wow this is insane you know how fantastic but yeah i mean it's uh, getting the lifetime achievement award from the ivor novellos and and i mean the ivors are for me the the pinnacle of all the awards because they're from other musicians and songwriters and composers so to get the lifetime achievement award was was such an, a lovely honor and accolade um but i i don't know yeah like i said pinch me moments constantly <laughs> wow 
What did you imagine um, as a young child? What did you imagine your future to look like? Was music always in the picture? Well, I had uh, <laughs> I had projected into my brain from my parents were you're a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Of course. Um, so, so it was kind of doctor was the favoured thing. So I guess I surrogately took on my parents' aspirations for a long time. But then, as time went on, I. I suppose I kind of, um, you know, I realised that my calling was to be a musician. However, I did study law and I did actually uh, qualify as an accountant um, for my sins, which is a bizarre thing. So you do your own taxes and you look at your no, own contracts? No, 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 God forbid. I, I mean, it was a long, long time ago. So, um, yeah, and no, I have a very competent person to work for me on those. But, but yeah, I, I guess when I was growing up, I loved music. From the age of five, I was playing piano. I was I, Then I got into playing flamenco guitar. I was in... All kinds of bands. I played with youth orchestras. I played with um, jazz quartets. I played with uh, uh, rock bands. I was in a uh, in a Van Halen covers band. I was in a punk band. I was in all kinds of things. It was wonderful just exploring music. But I was also studying Indian classical music. I played some tabla and also sitar at a nearby gurdwara. The guy who was teaching me uh, sitar was actually blind, and. Um, I remember it, there was a crazy time when one the strings broke and he wouldn't let me thread it through for him, the string, the broken, like I was trying to fix the string, but he wouldn't let me do it. He wanted to do it. I remember it was took ages for him to actually find the hole and thread it through. It was quite crazy. So I had some crazy experiences, kind of like learning from this amazing sitarist um, who was blind, but he was absolutely fantastic. And it just inspiring and gave me a, a whole massive love for the sitar and obviously I'd been a huge fan of um, Panditji Ravi Shankar and I've worked extensively with his daughter Anishka you know it's, it was great just kind of working as a, as a kid with a lot of really interesting artists and meeting brilliant musicians when I was young and um, and kind of just learning about how much you can gain from music in so many different ways. It enhances your life. I mean, one thing I said recently to someone was uh, music is a great way to train your intuition because I, I think your intuition, you have to be able to trust it as you get older. And to train it through music or the arts generally means that you are more in touch with your intuition and thereby you're able to do things more intuitively faster and with more confidence as you get older and I think I think music has given me so much more confidence as a human being I mean I was painfully shy when I was young and I think music and everything around it has, has changed all of that did you not trust your intuition growing up or was it just a lack of confidence maybe I, I did I did more through music yeah I think but I, I think over time you know it was kind of um I realised that that was the thing, the one thing I could trust because, you know, I, I was surrounded by a lot of bullying, a lot of aggression. I had a lot of racism directed towards me. Uh, I wasn't happy as a kid um, for a lot of reasons, but mainly because I experienced a lot of violence. And um, But I think music was sanctuary, but it was also something that I could believe in and knew that it was always going to be there for me and whatever you put in you, you got back and that was that was the great thing I mean sometimes you'd have friendships where you'd believe someone was your friend and then next thing because you were in a group of people who, and some of those people may be racist that person may change in order to fit in with that crowd and I, I saw that a few times so I couldn't really trust much and so I, I think music was my anchor. You spoke about some of the other different genres that you were exploring early on that maybe traditionally are not associated with South Asian people. You know, uh, you said you um, learned the 
Sadar and some other bits, but in, in the other genres, would you experience racism in, in those areas? I think racism being endemic, it's very difficult to say no to that. I mean, I remember, I won't go into the detail of it, but being in one band where um, they didn't know that I could hear them, uh, where they said you can't have a, I mean, I don't like to use the actual word, so a P-A-K-I in the band because you just can't have that. No one has that. No one's going to accept it. I remember kind of thinking um, that there just weren't any other Asians around or there were very few. Um, so it was kind of, I never felt like I fitted in anywhere because obviously growing up with just white people around you, when you go back home, you also feel like a fish out of water as well because you've got all of these experiences and reference points from school that don't apply to your home life and vice versa. I mean, although I had two brothers, they were both quite a bit older than me. So in terms of contemporaries or anyone my age, I didn't really have many people that I could relate to. I mean, there were people that I related to to some degree in certain experiences, but not others. I read that um, you didn't really talk to your parents growing up about the racism that you experienced. And I kind of was quite curious as to why that wasn't an open subject. And at what point did you start to talk to your mum about it? I think shame is a big thing. Your embarrassment. I think when you're a kid, you're painfully embarrassed as a, as a teenager. Everything embarrasses you. And you kind of feel awkward all the time. You walk around with a sense of awkwardness, you know, and I think that's the condition of, of kind of like most teenagers. But I think I, I found it hard to, to talk to my parents about stuff like that because also I didn't want them to feel like they'd failed in any way because they'd struggled so much in their lives. You know, they'd come over to give us a better life. They'd come over from India for that reason. They had a lot of optimism. Um, you know, my mum's a very optimistic person. My dad was pretty optimistic. So I didn't want to really ever interfere with that. It's only later on that I realised that they were experiencing similar things when I talked to my mum particularly. But I, I guess I kind of didn't want to interrupt that sense of having a a more kind of ideal existence at home. Were you able to reach out to your brothers? Not really, because they hadn't experienced the same thing. They were quite a bit older. I, I think they missed out on the heyday of the National Front. By that time, they were older. There's one brother who's five years older than me who was in the sixth form, and he was judo captain. You know, he was, like, very good at sports and so on. He was popular. And then my eldest brother was karate black belt. They were both very strong. I didn't have that when I was a kid. I felt like a ragdoll a lot of the time because a lot of people were just constantly whacking me around. It was only later on that I got into martial arts when as an adult. But I mean, I kind of didn't feel like I could defend myself or anything like that. I mean, it was it was quite constant. It was pretty much all the time. And teachers weren't that much better at times either. You know, one of them was a prominent member of the National Front. Again, I mean, I won't go into that in too much detail because that's kind of water under the bridge partially because I went to a school prize giving and they were, you know, they were quite um, apologetic about that time, although it wasn't really the people who were apologising. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't there. They weren't there at that time. So, but yeah, I mean, it was all a long time ago and it was a different, different era. So I'm curious to know your parents and your brothers were were very much in different areas. How does music then find you or come to you? Or how did you find music? I had classical piano lessons from the age of five. At school? So, um, no, not at school. Um, my mum and dad got me um, a piano teacher, which was fantastic. And she was brilliant. Was that from you showing like... You know, yeah. maybe you were. Yeah, I was really interested because um, we very fortunately had a piano donated by someone that my mum had worked with who 
was also a church organist and the church was giving away an old piano and my mum and dad said well we'll take it and um, so but it was mainly for my older brother who played it a bit but not as much and I kind of loved it you know as soon as I saw it I kind of fell in love with it and thought it was an amazing thing it felt cathartic from day one to hit the keys it just felt like it was a friend you know straight away and um, because of that I would work out things you know I'd hear something I remember the first thing I ever worked out was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because <laughs> I, I, I loved that and I was like sitting there for ages and I figured out how to play it with both hands and um, and because I was using both my hands to play, uh, I think my mum and dad thought, well, that's quite unusual or it seems to be unusual. So they got me piano lessons and then from there on, I was kind of totally hooked. So you just picked up by ear? Initially. Initially, Yeah, okay. I mean, when I was four or five, yeah. And then, and then I had proper training, yeah. Do you feel like, I, I know you're saying you don't look back, but when you have a second to think, do you think you've achieved what you wanted to achieve? I didn't ever want to achieve anything, to be honest with you, which sounds a bit mad, but I I really haven't ever set myself goals. I'm into processes. I think you get a lot more from life, I think, well, from my experience or from my way of thinking. Um, if you give yourself to a process and you enjoy the process and you don't set yourself so many goals or anything, because I think we're very goal oriented as a society and, and that makes us quite judgmental of ourselves and others. For me, I kind of find it's far more rewarding to to really engage with the process and enjoy that as much as you can and get from, from it as much as you can. And then everything follows from that. You know, obviously, when you're working professionally, if you're doing a film score or a television score or something like that, or a commission, there are deadlines. But again, I don't make it so that the deadline is everything. I just get into the process of it. And then, I mean, it's very unusual for me to ever miss a deadline. In fact, I don't think I ever have because I'm really engaged with what's going on and I enjoy it. And I think um, I think that's the thing. If you enjoy practicing playing, I mean, a lot of people say to me, you know, I couldn't play the thing that I wanted to play on the piano or I wasn't enjoying it because I wasn't any good, people will say. And I, I said, well, the thing is that that straight away is the wrong approach because actually the joy comes from just just doing mm. it and then just, just seeing what comes out and not judging it and and finding pleasure in actually doing rather than uh, rather than kind of thinking, is this good or bad? I think that's what I've always thought is like, just engage because it's incredibly enjoyable to play an instrument, whatever instrument that is, you know, it's, um, it's the most rewarding thing. It kind of makes you feel this sense of um, being almost impregnable when you're when you're playing. And I guess maybe that's partially because I have this perception of music as a sanctuary because of experiences when I was younger. Are you a spiritual person? Yes, yeah, spiritual is probably the right word because I, I, I'm not... Um, I don't have a, a faith. I mean, I guess I come from a Hindu background. A lot in Hinduism I really do like, and it appeals to me a great deal. But then I, I find a lot of interest in in a lot of different religions. I mean, I can feel very at home in a mosque or I can feel at home in a church or a Hindu temple. I, I think they're spiritual places, but I don't have a doctrine or anything like yeah. that. Um, the, the thing that I do feel, I guess, is um, I've always said if I had to describe what we are, I'd say that we're like um, spray on a wave uh, in the ocean and that, uh, that we spend our moment in the sunlight and then we return to the ocean. Mm. Beyond that, I don't really have any thoughts about it. I remember being at university and we would, me and my friends were doing a road trip up to, I think, Manchester or Nottingham to see some friends. And uh, my friend said, listen, you've got to listen to this album. It's called Sunset. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. 
and he put it on and I swear that's all we listened to for the next three hours and it was just amazing it was the first time I was like who is this and uh, we just we just fell in love with it and just listened to it the whole way and I guess my question is then whether it's that album or, or any of your others oh so so just to just to say that was Prophecy was the album Prophecy Sunset, yeah Sunset, Sunset was Sunset the song yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah 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 Prophecy was the album and yeah. I what I was curious about was um just those, I mean, you've touched on it already, just those influences and that fusion of music that you find from so many different backgrounds and cultures. Mm. Is that something that you do purposefully? Or again, it's just processing you find it? I always thought the whole world should be your palette, mm-hmm. as long as you do it respectfully and as long as you actually know what you're doing, which is why I've tried to work with so many people from different cultures and different backgrounds is to kind of equip myself with knowledge as much as I can and be respectful or to collaborate with people from a, a certain background. But I, I think that the world should be your musical palette and then you use that to paint emotional pictures in people's hearts you know or minds um, through sound if you have this concept of fusion people say oh is it fusion and I kind of think no because that feels contrived Mm. it feels like everything's separate and you're kind of forcing them together and I hear when people do that as well it can feel really contrived and awkward it doesn't feel like a natural meeting of of spirits or kind of of ideas or feelings it kind of feels um like oh yeah there's this idea here and there's this idea here and let's just put them together and see how they work for me it sounds wrong when people do that Hmm. when you choose to collaborate on projects with people or with companies or films or whatever what what does that process of choosing to do that or not do that how does it look? Is it all intuition based or like what excites you about certain things and which ones do you say no to? If I really like somebody's artistic output, you know, whether that's a director or a, or another musician or, or a poet or a um, dancer, whatever they do, the first thing is that I, I need to like what they've done or, or feel connected to it in some way. And then what will happen is that um, I'll normally sit with that person or those people for a while and just talk and and then just see what comes out and find what connections we might have or what common kind of ideas or themes we might want to explore together. And then everything emerges very naturally. I mean, it's very, I think that that's the best way because I, I think then the music writes itself. You know, it just it just happens. It doesn't really... I never even feel like I'm composing it. It's just like you just is in the air, you know, and it's it's so much more interesting that way. That's why I never feel stuck. I mean, it's like conversation. You know, if I'm sitting here on my own, I might not say all these things I'm saying. It's because we're talking and you're asking me things and so on. But I, I think that's the thing. Music and collaboration raises questions of each other. Then the answers just come as naturally as they would do because we have a lifetime of experience to draw from. I want to take a a slight turn and for anyone listening that doesn't know and I was really surprised that I wasn't aware of this but uh, tell us about the Secret Asians no, oh Secret Asians <laughs> oh yeah so Sanjanite so Sanji Baskar we went to college together and we spent uh, time hanging out together and actually we had uh, we had a double act initially called the Bargy Boys uh, where we would actually <laughs> we performed in the student union kind of bar and stuff like that and um, that was very early on and we both love comedy um, but we you know I mean we got on with our respective lives and then 
a few years later, we were just chatting and said it'd be a great idea to, to try something. And uh, we, we did a few things. We did some stuff at Tara Arts. We did a few things at the Tom Allen Centre. Then we did a little bit of touring around different art centres, just trying things out and improvising sometimes, just trying out characters and sketches and creating this kind of world of, of whatever between the two of us. Sometimes I'd be playing music. Sometimes it'd be... Uh, him singing or sometimes we'd be doing a sketch together where we'd be different characters like the Bungle Muffin uh, characters in Goodness Gracious Me was originally me and Sanj. We did a lot of stuff like that which was quite crazy and and you know it was good experience to be honest it, it gave me more confidence as well on stage. I do one-man shows now for example where I'm talking to an audience and I don't think I could do that so confidently and easily without having done uh, comedy with Sanj because I think it gives you so much more confidence to to actually because you have to elicit an emotional response you have to get laughter out of a crowd when you say things so it's interesting that dynamic of interaction with an audience where you're thinking you know every few lines that mm. you're speaking you, you you know if you don't get an, a, a response like that you're failing so it's kind of it's like when you're DJing if you if you're DJing in a club like I used to DJ a lot of fabric and places like that so if you're DJing and no one's dancing you failed so <laughs> so that's the whole thing so you have immediate judgment coming back at you and so you get used to that and and that makes you over time you know how to get that more you know what people are going to respond to it makes you more in tune with an audience and then suddenly you know you you find yourself without realizing it at 10 times more confident than you were you you spoke about earlier how you were quite quiet growing up do you feel more relaxed on stage oh totally yeah I, I, I don't weirdly I don't get nervous anymore I mean I used to all the time on stage um I kind of try to get myself into a state. <laughs> I think it's it's not that I don't care when I go on stage, but I kind of think I've got this attitude of, well, it's just people and I'm just talking to people yeah. and uh, and I don't feel intimidated by people anymore. Uh, I think I did when I was a kid. I, I don't feel that at all now. So then did um, you never caught the acting bug in the same way maybe Sanjeev well, and others did? Well, I, di- I did a bit because I, I did, I mean, I did a performance with... Akram Khan called Confluence, um, where we were both on stage together and uh, we performed initially at Sadler's Wells. And it was supposed to be a conversation originally. And then, I mean, I, I guess I was acting to some degree and goodness gracious me when I was in, in that initially. But, I, you know, it was kind of um, not anything serious, obviously. But with Confluence, that was good fun. Mm. Uh, Andy Circus had come to see it and he said uh, he'd love to do a two-man show with me. Uh, where we and I said I'm not an actor, Andy. I don't act. Uh, but he said he thought I could, and a few people have asked me that. You know, I have a I have an opportunity stack when I want to with my one man show, but I don't really do that. I mean, I I I like to um, be myself. It's a different art form. It's a different thing to be characters or or people. And I loved it when I did the comedy thing, but I always did it tongue in cheek, and I liked that. But I I think. Um, that ultimately the the life I have and the way I do things, I I enjoy that. So you you went back ad hoc into the episodes for goodness gracious me. Were you yeah. with it when it was a radio play? Yeah, yeah, I you did were. it for two you years. Did it. Yeah, yeah. So what? How did that come about? So it, it then decides to transfer to to a television show. Mm. Was it like, do you want to? St- stick with us and, and do this or do yeah, you want to yeah, step away yeah. was it as black and white no as no we, I was no no it was I was part of the team we were we all wrote and created together and we were all together uh, all the time so but for, for that um, but then what happened was that I 
I had an offer from Warner Brothers. Um, what was happening was I was producing uh, a young artist at that time called Amma for Warner Brothers, and it was a huge album that had been signed by Rob Dickens. She was the biggest at the time, the biggest signing f- in the whole of Europe for Warner Brothers. And so I thought, okay, I need to concentrate on that. And so I pulled out of goodness gracious me without too much notice, actually. Yeah. But it was, um, I could see the writing on the wall. I knew that the second that went on TV, I knew everyone was going to be massively famous from that. And I thought, I don't know if I want that. And so I kind of said to them, and it was it was a difficult decision. I mean, I talked to Sanj Banner and Anil Gupta, who was um, the producer who went on to do The Office, actually. He was a, for me, it was more like hanging out with a bunch of friends. Yeah. They were lovely people, and Sanj is still one of my best friends. He's a very close friend, and, you know, we'd, we'd been flatmates for years, and he's great. He's very talented. He's a great actor in Unforgotten. He's a very gifted person in lots of ways and uh, a really lovely human being. So I, I think I was very happy with how it went, really. Are you someone who can look over the state of... Um south asian talent in creative fields now do you feel a sense of do you feel it's come a long way since you started which i know is a silly question because in in a way of course it has but do you look at it with a sense of like oh wow we're we're sort of arriving on on a bigger scale on a wider scale if i'm honest i look at it with a lot of frustration uh, because i kind of think that um goodness gracious me shouldn't have become a bottleneck there should have been a lot more coming through there wasn't afterwards and and i think the problem is i mean i remember the day after a cab driver was with me and said oh i saw you last night in that let's go for an english sketch you know and he said i started making me think about how i behave in indian restaurants and he said i can be a right you know whatever and i was like wow that's pretty good you know and then I remember being in a in a Chinese restaurant and and five people um, on the table acted out the sketch from memory not knowing I was one of the people in it and I and I remember thinking wow that's pretty mad so but I mean you know my whole point was I thought there was an incredible impact and it should have been the case I mean I'm not just talking about the comedy I mean I'm, I'm also talking about you know, there was this scene in the 90s with music, which people refer to as the Asian underground scene. But a lot of acts, a lot of Asian acts, I mean, there was the Asian Asian Dub Foundation, Corner Shop, uh, Fundamental, Talvin Singh, myself, um, Bad Martian Shri. You know, there were lots of Asian acts, Black Star Liner. It just went on and on. Mm. And a lot of them were getting signed for major deals, but then they got dropped. Um, mainly after two, uh, after nine eleven, and it's interesting because I and I do say that as a watershed moment because I think there was so much bad or negative uh, kind of media around anyone who's just brown. There was an attitude change. There was this, there was a, a zeitgeist that that shifted with nine eleven, and I think there was less interest for quite a while in Asian artists and Asian music. Um, and I'm not saying it was deliberate, but I'm saying that there was. There was a shift. And I think that what was happening was there was a real genuine multicultural change that was happening, that people were becoming more pluralistic in their thinking and their approach to the arts. I think some of that's come back and I'm excited about certain things that I see now and I want to support um, any young Asian um, talent that I see anywhere. I'm always, because there's not enough. I mean, I'm now mm. chair of the PRS Foundation. I'm a director on the board of the um, Ivers Academy. And I don't see uh, at the moment in the arts generally enough Asian representation and certainly not in music in, in on a mainstream level. 
um, certainly not on radio, certainly not uh, in the arts generally. And that frustrates me a great deal. So when you say, uh, have we come a long way? Well, in, chronologically, yeah, but not in terms of, of evolution, no. Do you think it's definitely not due to the lack of people doing it, it's lack of opportunity? Yes. And I've I've pointed this out to even awards, um, you know, certain people who give out certain very well-known awards. I've actually spoken to them directly to say this. And they came back at me and said, uh, well, we, you know, like there's not enough Asian artists coming forward. I said, well, sorry, when you have endemic racism, it's your duty to go out and find them hmm. or find or have people go out and look because there isn't, they're not being platformed enough. And so in order for them to get platformed, there needs to be recognition of what they do when someone does do something that's how it works the more people are acknowledged for their for their skills then the more they'll inspire new talent and then you'll have more platforming of new talent because they're getting uh, awarded and so on and recognized so you have to change the ecosystem and i say that with composition as well for films for example with women as well there are hardly any women composers in the film world very few um, compared to men it's the same with uh, people of color as well they're, they're just aren't enough you know there are very yeah. few and i pointed this out on twitter before i pointed out on uh, on a number of platforms so yeah i mean it's frustrating i wanted to touch on um i was reading some of the about some of the work you've done and the reviews around it when publicly it gets great accolade but a lot of the written reviews are scathing sometimes yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what what are your thoughts around I'm it? I'm used to it now. I used to care a lot about that. For a time, I could do no wrong, you know, with the with the press and the media. I mean, literally everything I did was five stars, was whatever, was constantly, you know, lauded. Um, I haven't changed particularly in terms of what I do. It's just that what happened was that the thing that you're probably talking about is Coventry Cathedral. Yeah. So, I mean, with Coventry Cathedral, it was on the radio. We had a fantastic degree of support from the BBC. The BBC uh, broadcast it on the radio and also um, on television too, which was fantastic. Like you said, incredible uh, responses of the people who were there. It was sold out every night. It went on for three nights, um, sold out. Everyone loved it. People stayed back afterwards for the talks afterwards. Incredible responses. But critics, again, part of it was because they misunderstood what, what it was about. Um, they they kept thinking that I was, I was, you know, how dare you actually uh, try to follow in the footsteps of Benjamin Breton. And it was like, well, I wasn't. I was asked to, uh, as a commission to write a, a particular thing for a cathedral choir in a certain way and they go it's too Anglican where it's like yeah that's a cathedral choir that's, that's singing you know so <laughs> that's what I'm going to write for them because that's what they sing so we didn't have a whole band or orchestra to play with them it's, it was like that but like you said I mean the public absolutely loved it and I continue to get incredible responses from the people who were there and, and people who saw it on television as well. But um, it interests me that because I find it fascinating. At one point, I did respond on Twitter to it. I kind of highlighted that it was amazing to have had, for example, one of the singers who was from the original Benjamin Britten 1962 recording of The War Requiem, who was actually in the audience, who'd come up and said how much she loved it. And she was 90 odd years old. Then three generations of that same family were all there. And that for me was amazing. I mean, the people of Coventry liked it. It. And we had a great young 
uh, poet laureate, a Muslim poet laureate, who was fantastic. I'm very proud of the music and the people who participated. You know, the, the homeless people who were barely mentioned in the reviews, people who come from a lived experience of homelessness, who were, who were um, a fantastic choir. And there were there were other choirs, who, who community choirs who all joined in, who were just absolutely amazing and just put so much effort in. I mean, some of those uh, choristers were, were waiting outside for 40 odd minutes before we started. The audience was was happy to wait outside in bitter cold and it just was an incredible experience and like you said I mean it's so weird when you see but you know and it was it was um, a shame. Do you think it comes if you were going to evaluate it would you feel like is it from fear do you think or is it ignorance is it lack of understanding it or trying to understand wanting to understand? Some people find it very hard to accept the idea that I've got as much classical knowledge as they have of western classical music and that I'm highly... Yeah, I mean, even, yeah, well, that's what happened, I guess, with some of the people. I mean, they some people think, how dare you, you know, stay in your box. And it's kind of like when I was um, working on uh, one project at the Limbury, um, the Royal Opera House, I'd created a piece that was based on quite complicated mathematics as well as an idea. I mean, I was taking the idea of Schrodinger's cat and I turned it into a pregnancy test, the idea of um, whether somebody comes into existence not based on observation of looking at a pregnancy test. And it was kind of that idea of the wave function collapsing into this reality or, or another one. So I created these kind of five parallel universes by by um, getting five women singing on stage in different languages and, and in different ways. And it was hugely complicated and probably one of the most um, ambitious things I've ever written. And I had to use quite complicated calculus in order to get the music to ex- accelerate at a given tempo rate um, and and that rate to change as well uh, during the course of this. Anyway, I won't go into the details of it. And, but it was a very complicated piece and it worked and the audiences loved it. And I got standing ovations every year. In fact, I'm not going to s- say this lightly, for every single thing I've done over the last 20 years, um, I've had a standing ovation. And it's like, I think, well, that's quite a big deal. Um, and I I think with with that, to have had a standing ovation every night, but of course I, I saw a critic actually straight away write down world music, blah, 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 blah. And of course they want to dismiss it because they people can't take the idea that you could actually have different interests and skills. You know, I have lived and breathed Western classical music. I've lived and breathed jazz. I've lived and breathed lots of different types of music since I was a child. For me, there was no wall between them. You know, I didn't find boundaries. In mm. fact, I found that everything in, enhanced one, th- you know, knowledge of one thing enhanced your knowledge of another. And so I think mm. people find that, I don't know what they what they feel about it. Maybe they find it intimidating because they don't have that knowledge or experience or or think that you can't have these things working together and they feel affronted by it, perhaps. It's, it's frustrating again. We had um, on one of our previous episodes, we had uh, Ruth Maidley on, uh, an actress who won a BAFTA a few years back. And I had a question I asked her that reminded me uh, just now, which was you spoke about these standing ovations that you've received over the last 20 years. Does that then, are you someone who then feels the pressure in the next thing you do of going... It needs to be as good, if not better. No, I don't base anything that I do on what's happened. I base it on what I'm doing now in the moment and make it as good as it can be. And that's it. I think if you do that, you are constantly under pressure and you can't enjoy yourself. You know, you need to enjoy everything you do because that's how you make it good. You know, if, you, if you're not enjoying it, it won't be. And so the pressure of that wouldn't be welcome. 
I know as an actor, I, uh, you know, when you find those moments where you're 100% invested, you know, it doesn't happen every day and it doesn't happen every role, but those moments where you really perform something and you go, you know what, I've given it everything and your emotion just drains out of you, can mm. be incredibly exhausting. Do you feel the same then when you're at home composing music and, you know, you connect to it really emotionally? Do you have to sit down at the end of the day yeah, and just... totally, yeah. It's the same whether you're working on a commission or working with a director or if you're working in your own stuff, you know. Um, it's you, you always give a lot of emotion. And it's weird because I, I never really thought emotion was something that you feel depleted by. But you do. You feel very depleted when you've actually uh, output a great deal of emotion. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to kind of get your energy back to want to do much in the evening mm. sometimes. How do you um, unwind? Well, <laughs> uh, lots of different ways. Well, I love chess, um, of all things. Um, but I also like... Um, that doesn't I mean, surprise I, me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I like reading. I like... Well, I'm trying to get back into... I used to do a lot of martial arts. I used to do a lot of kickboxing. I did it for about 15-odd years. I, I did a lot of it. And uh, I'm trying to get back into things like that. I used to run a lot. Um, so I'm over COVID. I got very lazy and rubbish at everything. So I'm trying to get back to, back to that. But also um, sometimes just... Yeah, just kind of, uh, yeah, just watching television, just things like that, which um, I don't think people, when they're asked that question, say enough. And I actually get a lot from watching great television series. I mean, there's so many amazing things on Netflix and and um, Do you binge watch? Yeah, I definitely do. Yeah, I mean, there's been some great series that I've, I've loved binge watching, yeah. Any favourites? Do you have a particular genre that you kind of... Not really. I mean, if something grabs me, it'll just happen. I mean, every, I think a lot of people, for example, binge watch Stranger Things of all things. Yeah. But I, I, I loved um, kind of typical things, Ozark, Succession, Breaking Bad, you know, all that kind of thing. I like a television series more than um, more than films these days, just because I, I feel like I can fully immerse, yeah. and, you know, and you can you can be totally immersed for for quite a while, and 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 then come out the end. Um, you know, feeling transformed in some way. Are you able to switch off sort of your work musician brain in a way when you're listening to scores or do you, are you quite like aware of it? No, I am aware of it. I'll, I'll really, <laughs> that's why I'll kind of, yeah, I will find myself binge watching sometimes just as much for the scores as I will for anything. You know, I'll be going, oh, that's what they did there. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. And, and you know, like I watched the Obi-Wan series recently, which uh, I thought was brilliant, but I was fascinated because I knew that there's uh, I don't I don't actually know about who um, I can't remember who who scored that but it was interesting the use of the John Williams original kind of scores in that uh, in order to kind of connect to the authenticity of the original ones from the 70s so I kind of thought oh wow that's that's quite interesting and I found the same thing when I was watching uh, the Blade Runner sequel you know in terms of how they would connect to the Vangelis score you know so I kind of find it fascinating when composers are tasked with the idea of following in the footsteps of a great composer I mean I had that when I was writing the music for The the Lodger, which was the Hitchcock silent movie. And weirdly enough, I had to score a movie that he he directed from 1927, which actually starred Ivan Novello. But, you know, of course, everyone's very familiar with Bernard Herrmann's work with the Hitchcock that came later, Psycho and Vertigo yeah. uh, and all yeah. those things. So I'm writing the music knowing all of Bernard Herrmann's work comes later than this film. So I had to kind of write in a way that was almost like a naive Bernard Ehrman score. So it's kind of, you know, it's interesting when you have to go back and look at something you really like. And and, and uh, that's something I do, as you were saying, I do it a great deal when I'm watching 
films or television, I'll just think, how are they going to approach that? It's a tricky, it's you, a tricky one. Are you quite good at detaching and, and not being like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have... I'll, I'll kind of probably start off thinking some of those things or not necessarily thinking I wouldn't have done that. I'll just listen openly and just think what have, what's been their approach and then see what I can learn from it. Yeah. Um, but I... Um, although I've been a BAFTA judge before, and that's then you have to think differently. But otherwise, I'll just immerse myself in watching and just thinking, okay, how's this working? And and then I'll I'll be immersed. I won't mm. uh, if it's if it's good. To be honest with you, I'll stop thinking about the music and just follow the feeling of what's going on. And I think that's the mark of a good score, anyway. Without sounding like a trick question, do you feel whether it be a sense of obligation or pride responsibility whatever it is when you know south asian talent are on film or tv yeah i do yeah i mean but but also also because i know some some of you know like riz ahmed um i knew him from ages ago when um i was a, a mentor for a project called aftershock and he was one of the people participating and and so um he was about 19 then and he was rapping mainly but i mean obviously when i see him on the cover of time magazine and, yeah. <laughs> and you know doing all of the stuff that he's done and he's got he's retained his integrity as a person you know we're still in touch every now and then so yeah i mean uh, it's there, but there's quite a few people that i feel you know obviously i feel a lot of pride in sanj mm. um you know as a friend that he's he's had so much success with particularly one forgotten um mira Sial, i think has been an inspiration to so many people you know they they're, they're trailblazers mm. and um you know i think from that point of view um i do feel pride in the fact that they haven't just done what they've done for themselves they've actually also opened gateways mm. yeah absolutely well, listen, you are absolutely a, a trailblazer yourself, if you don't know already. Um, but that's that's our time. That hour's yeah. just sort of shot by so That's quickly it? yeah <laughs> and i don't even we always ask people this question but i already know the answer um oh. <laughs> but we always ask people at the end of it what part of their job they love the most is it getting the gig the process or the end product oh um, there you go yeah you know, no I, I do yeah i always well i do love the process but then obviously the rest of it is great as well <laughs> but i mean i talk a lot about process but process for me is actually I mean, I, I remember when I was young, I, I read um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which has its Brilliant flaws, book. has its flaws as a book yeah, at times, well. but it is. But I do think it's a yeah. great book. Yeah, and there's one section of it where he talks about the idea of enjoying the journey on the motorbike, and I think that's the thing. He was saying, you know, it's it's important to think about the journey and you know look around you and have an awareness rather than constantly think about the destination. That I think had a profound influence on me in terms of that idea of always feeling like I need to engage with process and think uh, about that but it's also I kind of think it is ingrained in eastern philosophy as well you know it's part of um it's part of my upbringing too just a quick question just I, we don't tend to go over after that last question mm -hmm. but just based on that did you ever have moments in your career where you ever got pulled in those other directions whether you know the fame or the success did it ever have did you ever have moments of going oh I feel like I'm going a bit too much that way I need to come back to process yeah i mean definitely with goodness gracious me you know the idea that um you know i kind of had to think why would i want that and, and 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 you know i had other offers or options where i could have done things which would have made me a lot of money or would have got me probably much more into the mainstream than i am i like my life i don't yeah. i don't really feel that i want anything particularly you know and so if it does take you away from the process if it if it feels like you're doing it for commercial gain or anything like that i think you're going the wrong direction because yeah. as an art well you're no longer an artist you stop being an artist the second you do that 
because I want to be an artist. Well, that's what I feel I am, and that's what I've always been. And mm. and I kind of think as an artist, your primary concern is to be cathartic and expressive, and to also engage with the process. But I think as a you know sometimes as a communicator, you can achieve more success. You know, as somebody who's able to communicate to a bigger audience, or or more you know, or communicate in a way that actually. Uh, achieves more financially or commercially or whatever um, or fame wise you know great and I I think that's really good and and sometimes you know if if I'm hard up for cash and somebody said you know do you want to do an advert um, if it's an interesting one I might do it you know and I've done that in the past and I've worked with big you know I've worked with Nike and and Yves Saint Laurent and Sephora and things that you know which are big names but it's kind of it, I also found the process interesting to, to work with those sorts of yeah. things. So it's kind of, I think it depends on your motivation and you've got to think, you've got to question yourself, what is my motivation in doing this every stage of your career and every yeah. stage of your experience yeah. and be realistic about why you're doing things. If you're realistic with yourself um, and don't kid yourself that you're one thing when you're not, then I think you'll never have problems or internal conflicts. Nithin, thank you so much for your time coming onto cool. the podcast. It's been it's thank been you. an absolute pleasure. Well, pleasure to meet you both no, as well. Thank Amazing. you so yeah, much. Very thank cool. You.